0: It's December 26th, 2002. A crisp, cold morning in Roswell, New Mexico, just above freezing. People on their way to work step gingerly upon icy sidewalks as the town comes to life. One person with a definite agenda is 80-year-old Walter Hout. His house on West 7th Street is only six miles from Walker Air Force Base, where as a young first lieutenant, he once served as public information officer. Less than two miles south of the base is the International UFO Museum and Research Center that he helped found. But neither of these are his destination this morning as he walks slowly down his garden path, trees flanking him like an honor guard. Walter has lived a quiet life in retirement. He's a man of few words, fiercely loyal. It's that very loyalty that has eaten away at him for decades now, a story locked away thanks to the twin padlocks of country and friendship. He's not a young man anymore, and loyalty aside, he is determined that what he knows will not die with him. Walter takes a bus into town, savoring the wintry bite of the breeze as he makes his way to the offices of local notary Beverly Morgan. He's her first appointment of the day and reminds her of her own granddad the way he ambles in. His face is kind, topped with a shock of thick white hair, with keen eyes staring out at her from behind thick glasses. His voice is gentle and self-assured when he politely introduces himself. Hout hasn't given any heads-up or advance warning of what needs notarizing, beyond it being a statement he has prepared. She smiles, offers him a coffee, and waits patiently as he pulls several sheets of paper from a folder he has brought along. Roswell is a small town. Less than 50,000 souls live here. Yet, Hout isn't a name she has heard before. But it's one she won't soon forget. He holds out the document with hands that are surprisingly steady for his age. Placing his words into somebody else's possession triggers a tiny twang of guilt, even though she'll be duty-bound to keep them under wraps until after his death, however far off that may be. There's a twinge of relief, too. A passing of the baton. Assured in the knowledge that he has found a way to keep a promise to a friend and safeguard his duty to his country, what he feels is right. Walter Hout is more than just an old man setting his affairs in order. He, and the story he sets out in his affidavit, are part of history. A first-hand account from a man who was there when one of the most renowned conspiracy theories of modern times was spawned someone who claims to have seen things with his own eyes that few other humans have borne witness to. A detailed account of a hot summer's day back in 1947, when Roswell would forever become synonymous with the search for extraterrestrial life. And according to Walter Hout, mankind finally had proof of intelligent life from beyond the stars. If even a fraction of it is true, Gasoline will pour over a conspiracy pyre that has been smoldering for more than half a century. But 55 years is a long time for an untold story to survive intact and unchanged. Just how much truth is there in Hout's words? Is he setting the stage to be a whistleblower from beyond the grave? Or has his story been embellished over time, his mind fogged up by decades of distance from the original event? To answer these questions, we need to travel back 55 years prior to Hout's visit to the notary, to the town of Roswell, New Mexico, a time when the phrase flying saucer had yet to be coined. Is this the biggest government cover-up of all time, or just the product of a generations-long rumor mill that has made Roswell a mecca for conspiracy theorists? At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secrets off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Walter Haut, of the words he wrote before he died. About a day in 1947 that some consider the start of one of the biggest cover-ups in history a sleepy town plunged into the media spotlight across the globe. Men of honor, bound by loyalty to core and country, many of who were allegedly threatened if they dared to deviate from the official version of events. And a sworn affidavit, the contents of which, if true, finally give us the answers to a 55-year-old question. Did an alien craft crash on our planet, proving we are not alone? I'm Estefania Haigman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. Ah yes, the magnificent trolley sourbright crawler. Also known as Trollica brightolus, the worm's captivating neon color makes it an easy gummy prey. Trolly! It's a surprisingly sour, invitingly chewy, staggeringly snackable species unlike anything else found on this planet. Eat me! Delicious. Visit trolly.com to shop now. Trolly, eat me! This episode is brought to you by the Weather Channel. The key to solving any mystery... Smart decisions based on the facts. In the case of the weather's effect on your well-being, turn to the Weather Channel app. It clues you in on how weather shapes your mood, health, and productivity with insights built on reliable forecast data to help you thrive. Because mystery belongs in true crime, not weather. Be a force of nature with the Weather Channel app. It's June 1922, and the world is still licking its wounds from the Great War. As if that's not enough, a fresh wave of the Spanish flu, a deadly pandemic, rages across countries and continents with no regard for borders. It will go on to kill over 25 million people globally, including over half a million Americans. It's into this chaotic era that Walter Hout is born in Chicago, Illinois. Not much is known of his childhood, but when war breaks out again in 1939, he enlists in the Air Force. Hout becomes a bombardier, flying 35 successful missions over Japan. He is awarded numerous medals for bravery, including the Purple Heart. He does his duty without question or hesitation. After the war, he shipped back home. In 1947, he is transferred to what is then known as the Roswell Army Airfield, just outside of Roswell, New Mexico. His new role there is public information officer for the 509th Bomb Group. It's midway through his first year here that he becomes embroiled in events that will cement his place in history. Yet two weeks prior to the phenomenon in Roswell, New Mexico, something equally stupefying took place in Washington state. It's June 24th, 1947, and amateur aviator Kenneth Arnold takes off from his local airfield near Chehalis in Washington State, some 1,600 miles northwest of Roswell. He's heading to a town called Yakima on business, but there's a detour he needs to make first. A Marine Corps transport plane crashed somewhere near Mount Rainier, and there's a $5,000 reward waiting to be collected for anyone who finds the wreckage. Conditions are practically perfect for him. Clear skies great visibility, and nothing above a mild wind. The promise of such a large sum of money, more than the average American yearly salary, means he's on high alert, all senses primed to spot anything out of the ordinary. What he sees, however, isn't on the ground, buried under a canopy of trees. It's up above, in the sky. A flash of light off to his left, like sunlight glinting off a mirror. Arnold flinches, whipping his head around, worried he might have strayed too close to another aircraft. But the skies appear empty, save for a Douglas DC-4 aircraft spotted about 15 miles northwest. He exhales, relaxes back into his seat, and resumes his journey eastwards towards Yakima. Around 30 seconds later, a series of bright flashes to the north of his position makes his head recoil left. Could it just be sunlight glinting through his own windows? Arnold rolls his wings from side to side, waiting for the glare to repeat. Nothing. He removes his glasses, rubs his eyes, and takes another look. Again, the glint, like gold in a pan. Whatever he's seeing, there's more than one of them, flying in a long extended chain, around 20 miles away and closing. For a second, he wonders if it could be a flock of geese but quickly discounts that because birds don't fly at this altitude. Plus, they're flying far too fast. It has to be some form of aircraft. Maybe they're a new type of jet being trialed by the military. But if they are airplanes, why do they leave no trail behind them? He studies them, forehead creased as they quickly approach. Kenneth Arnold's breath catches in his throat as the mysterious aircraft fleet is now upon him. Not planes, not like any kind he's ever seen, anyway. Definitely crafts of some sort, though, although darker in color than he first thought, silhouetted in contrast against the stark white, snowy peak of Mount Rainier. The way they move defies all instincts he has as a pilot, flipping erratically as they speed silently past. One appears crescent-shaped, while the others are cookie-cutter copies of one another, convex curves appearing so thin as they twist past him, has to be practically invisible. The way they move is so foreign to him that his brain struggles to keep up with what his eyes are seeing. Grace that belies their size, cutting through the sky like saucers skipping on the water. They're stretched out over a few miles, staggered in a diagonal line, but their incredible speed has them all past him before he can properly process the spectacle. He blinks, swallows, and make some quick-fire calculations. Comparing their size to the DC-4 behind him, Arnold guesses these craft are over 100 feet in length. He watches, mesmerized as they weave from side to side. Arnold changes course to follow them southwards, opening his window so as to be sure that the reflections are no trick of the glass. Even though their speed means they're far outstripping him, he's able to follow their progress for a while longer staring in amazement as they dart down low through valleys and whip up over smaller peaks. By the time they wink out of view, one minute and 42 seconds after appearing, Kenneth Arnold calculates their speed based on distance covered. He puts it in excess of 1,700 miles per hour about three times the speed of any known manned aircraft in 1947. He suspects it could have been a test flight of a revolutionary new military aircraft. With nothing more concrete to hang his hat on, it could end up being nothing more than a tale to tell his buddies over a beer. Arnold has no idea, though, that his sighting will be the first of a run that leads right up to the most famous of all, a matter of weeks from now, near Roswell. When Kenneth Arnold lands in Yakima, he tells several pilot friends what he's seen, but none of them can offer a better explanation. He carries on his journey to a local air show in Pendleton, Oregon, where he's interviewed by skeptical reporters. Their cynicism melts a little after meeting him and hearing his story firsthand. He has the makings of a reliable witness, a respected businessman and experienced pilot. While Arnold's story will eventually take a backseat to the Roswell incident, his lasting legacy is cemented when newspapers seize on his comments describing the flying objects as saucer like, breathing life to the now universal term used by conspiracy theorists everywhere. In the weeks that follow his sighting, hundreds more people claim to have had a similar experience around the US. Nine days after Arnold's flight, on the 4th of July, a United Airlines crew reports seeing nine disc like objects flying over Idaho. In total, 853 separate sightings are made. Common themes and descriptions abound, many mimicking Arnold's description around shape and speed. Officials from nearby McCord Army Airfield claim Arnold is mistaken. What he saw was most likely a group of P-80 jet planes. These were the first jet planes used by the US Air Force, not commonly sighted and capable of speeds approaching 1,000 kilometers per hour. One of these incidents stands out above all others, though. It unfolded in and around the town of Roswell, New Mexico. The Roswell incident, as it will become known, starts with a sheep rancher named W.M. Brazel, or Mac, as he's known by his friends. On the night of Saturday, July 5th, 1947, Brazel makes a trip from his remote ranch 80 miles northwest of Roswell, to the town of Corona, New Mexico. He lives a lonely existence most of the year. No phone, no television set, no radio. No way of knowing about the flying saucer craze that has swept New Mexico and surrounding states these past few weeks. It isn't until he makes it to town and hears the news that he makes any connection between these fanciful stories and the mysterious debris he found scattered across a square mile of his ranch three weeks ago. He has collected it up, but not yet disposed of it. Brazell travels back to his ranch on Sunday, loads it into his truck, and Monday morning makes the journey to the town of Roswell, where he makes a beeline for the sheriff's office. The sheriff, George Wilcox, shrugs it off. Not his jurisdiction. No crime has been committed. By pure chance, Wilcox takes a call from a local radio announcer, Frank Joyce. Joyce is looking for local stories, and Will Cox passes the phone over to Brazil. It's on Joyce's advice that Brazil reports his find to officials at Roswell Army Airfield. Major Jesse Marcel takes the call and drives straight to the sheriff's office to meet Brazil and hear his story firsthand. Brazil offers to take Marcel to the debris site, and the two gather up as much as they can lay their hands on. It's piecemeal, rather than the larger disc shape of the press statement the Army will release, much of it resembling rubber. And tin foil. It's late by the time Marcel makes it back to base. He's exhausted after an afternoon in the baking New Mexico heat. He has hauled as much debris as possible into his baby blue Buick Roadmaster convertible. Marcel's 11 year old son, Jesse Jr., will later share his memories of that evening, saying that his father woke him up late that night, tired but excited. Marcel Sr. tells his son to get up and come downstairs. He has something to show him. His father disappears outside, returning moments later with handfuls of what looks like metallic debris. He spreads it on the floor, like pieces of a jigsaw, looking to get a sense of its original form, but the pieces don't form a natural pattern. It's a real jumble, fragments of foil-like material, others that look like plastic and some that resemble wooden beams. These latter pieces bear marks, symbols of sorts, written in a purplish hue. Father and son share a moment that will live on in the boy's memory, long after his father's eventual death 40 years later. Marcel Sr. tidies the debris away, stashing it back in the trunk of his car, making his son the last non-serving member of the military to see it up close and personal. The next time it will be on display will be at a staff meeting the following morning at the airfield, and amongst those present, will be the base's public information officer, a 25-year-old first lieutenant by the name of Walter Hout. It's Tuesday, the 8th of July, 1947, and Hout arrives at the regular staff meeting at Roswell Army Airfield around 7.30. The meeting is chaired by base commander, Colonel William Blanchard, a man who is not only Walter Hout's commanding officer, but someone the young first lieutenant considers a mentor. Some say even a friend. Blanchard's own boss, Brigadier General Roger Ramey, is in attendance, along with a number of other senior officers stationed there. The main topic of discussion is the extensive spread of debris that Jesse Marcel investigated the day before. Colonel Blanchard shares with the group news of a secondary debris site 40 miles north of town. Local press has already caught wind of the discovery, as have a number of locals. The assembled officers debate as to what the military's response should be. Blanchard gives Hout the go-ahead to release a statement to selected radio stations and newspapers, one that will cast a long shadow for years to come. The statement that runs reads as follows. The many rumors regarding the flying disc became a reality yesterday, when the intelligence office of the 509th Bomb Group of the 8th Air Force, Roswell Army Airfield, was fortunate enough to gain possession of a disc through the cooperation of one of the local ranchers and the Sheriff's Office of Chaves County. The flying object landed on a ranch near Roswell sometime last week. Not having phone facilities, the rancher stored the disc until such time as he was able to contact the Sheriff's Office, who in turn notified Major Jesse A. Marcel of the 509th Bomb Group Intelligence Office. Action was immediately taken, and the disc was picked up at the rancher's home. It was inspected at the Roswell Army Airfield and subsequently loaned by Major Marcel to higher headquarters. When this statement hit the airwaves and afternoon editions, it creates a feeding frenzy. Hout's office is inundated with calls from around the world. Requests for interviews, more details, pictures even. Every single one goes unanswered because Hout, having heeded Blanchard's order, headed home for the day. The debris is shipped out the day of the original statement, escorted by Jesse Marcel. Its destination? 8th Air Force Headquarters at Fort Worth, presided over by General Roger Ramey. Hout's press release has spawned a hundred more questions, but the follow-up statement he releases after General Ramey inspects the debris is even more shocking. It's the afternoon of July 8th, and the airwaves are buzzing with news of the purported extraterrestrial spaceship. Jesse Marcel strides out across the warm tarmac towards a B-29 bomber, the name Dave's Dream etched on the side. The very same aircraft took part in the atomic bomb attack on Nagasaki two years earlier, filming the effects of the blast. It's about to have a second brush with history today, as Marcel heads out to meet it carrying a box stuffed with some of his haul from Mac Brazel's ranch. Marcel's movements are watched by First Lieutenant Robert Shirky, who strains to get a look at the stream of boxes being loaded onto the plane. His view is blocked by Colonel Blanchard, who stands stoically in front of him. Frustrated, Shirky finally says to Blanchard, Colonel, turn sideways, I want to see too." Surprisingly, the usually stern Blanchard obliges. As the men carrying the boxes parade past, Shirky glimpses what appears to be sheets of brushed metal and thin beams with odd markings on them. Then, just as quickly as it began, the strange event ends. The B-29 taxis along the runway, engines roaring to life, powering its huge hull down the tarmac and up into the sky, soaring eastwards. Towards Fort Worth, Texas. Colonel Blanchard disappears back inside the building with nothing more than a dismissive, see you, in Shirky's direction, leaving the duty officer to wonder what on earth he had just seen. Shirky won't have much time to mull it over, though. Nine days later, he is shipped out to Clark Field in the Philippines, who, according to his superiors, urgently needs a weight and balances officer. But upon Shirky's arrival, the commanding officer of Clark Field is confused. They don't need a weights and balances officer and had never sent a request for one. So why was Shirky whisked away from Roswell so quickly? As it turns out, he wasn't the only one present around the time of the Roswell event to be inexplicably transferred. Every one of us went to a different base somewhere around the world so that no two of us were together. He later recalls during an interview with the Department of Defense, As for Jesse Marcel, he delivers the debris personally to General Ramey in Texas, and Ramey asks him to pose for what will later become an iconic picture. The enduring shot is snapped right there on Ramey's office floor. It captures Marcel, crouching by the pieces of assorted debris laid out on the floor, looking off camera at General Ramey. Once his moment in front of the cameras has passed, Marcel returns to Roswell with General Ramey's thanks. The next official statement that comes from Hout's office on July 9th is one of the most controversial retractions of all time. Hout reports a revised version of events, claiming that they had been mistaken. The debris was not anything extraterrestrial, far from it. General Ramey and his chief of staff, Colonel Thomas DuBose, identify it as fragments of a weather balloon. The Roswell Daily Record prints the Army's revised version of events, including comments from Mac Brazell. He is reported as saying that the debris collected from his ranch is what he'd expect to see from a rubber weather balloon. What the readers from the Daily Record don't know, but we later learn from Brazell's friends and family, is that the day before issuing his revised statement, Brazell was taken from his ranch by officials and didn't return for a full week his family doesn't know where they took him. All they know is that when he comes back, he's had a change of heart. Some believe that Brazil was indeed a witness to an extraterrestrial event and that the government was ensuring his silence. However, very credible sources within the Department of Defense have since linked the Roswell debris to a top-secret army project, a craft that they didn't want other countries to get wind of. After all, the Cold War began in 1947, the same year as the Roswell event, and the United States was already developing all manner of spy technology. Regardless of what actually happened to Brazil, the front page headline that runs on July 9th, 1947 reads, Harassed rancher who located saucer, sorry he told about it. This marks the beginning of the end for the Roswell incident as a viable story. Amazingly, The media and the public accept the explanation without question. The calls coming into Walter Hout's office slow to a trickle, then dry up completely within a matter of weeks. Roswell has gone from being the nation's UFO capital back to relative obscurity in a fortnight. Those positioned weeks ago to be key players in an event of global significance return to their ordinary lives. Mac Brazel went back to the ranch but eventually walked away from it to work as a security guard before dying of a massive heart attack in 1963. Major Jesse Marcel left the military, applying for a hardship discharge three years after the events at Roswell to look after his elderly mother. He became a TV repairman in Louisiana until his death in 1986. Colonel William Blanchard continued to serve his country, becoming a four-star general and dying at his desk in the Pentagon in 1966. First Lieutenant Walter Hout took the most peculiar route of all. After leaving the military, he went on to found the International UFO and Research Center in Roswell, a curious career choice for a man who towed the party line at the time and ignored attempts to get him to deviate from it. Like many stories that raged through the press like a forest fire, the Roswell event burned out quickly. But while the flames may have been extinguished, there's something still there in the charred remains. A hunger for answers that has not been satisfied by the Army's official explanation. All it needs is a spark. That comes later, when sadly, on December 15th, 2005, First Lieutenant Walter Hout. Dies of natural causes, aged 83. The weight of his secrets are finally lifted from him in death. Now the burden of his sealed affidavit falls upon his daughter, Julie Schuster. The promise she made him three years earlier rings in her ears. His instructions were clear once he's dead, the contents of his affidavit can be shared with the world. Julie knows the words of his deathbed confession intimately. After all, she'd helped him write them. Even solicited the help of Hout's trusted friend, ufologist Don Schmidt. Now, Julie must decide how and when to carry out her father's dying wish. She knows that when it's released, the affidavit will send shockwaves throughout the world. Like opening a Pandora's box that can never be closed. Next week on Deathbed Confessions, we see the rebirth, 30 years later, of Roswell as a hill that many conspiracy theorists are willing to make their stand on. Walter Hout finally ends decades of silence when his daughter shares his account of what he says really happened on that fateful day in July, 1947. He's not alone. Others who were there will begin to speak up, picking away at a scab that has festered for far too long. But who can we really trust after all these years? Could anyone, even someone as powerful as the American military, really keep a lid on something so huge for so long? Or is it just fanciful notions, a myth perpetuated by conspiracy theorists in love with a notion that we are not alone, regardless of any surviving hard evidence? Find out next week. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from ParCast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boirot for ParCast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Written by Rob Scrag. Supervising editor Derek Jennings. Sound design by Carla Flores and Matthias torres Sound supervisor Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds-Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dori McCauley.